feel like it's connected to all the cells of the horse and you can move your limb or take a breath or turn your shoulder ever so slightly. And it's just like a perfect connection with the horse because of something intrinsically rewarding. That was what I kind of learned how to start the process of with Misa in that first year. I wish I could gift everyone in the entire equestrian community an opportunity to feel the like joy that exudes off of a horse that totally owns their movement and is like rocking their dance next to you completely at liberty. Like, oh, the best feeling ever. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a happy, light and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication, so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritising partnership with your horse. Want to find out my horse training philosophy? Access the free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Welcome to episode 15 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. And in today's episode, we chat with Tara Davis, aka Unbridled Goddess. At her ranch in Humboldt County, California, Tara immerses herself in the teachings of the herd, sharing the timeless wisdom of the horse. Weaving together lessons from science and spirituality, hers is a unique horsemanship approach in which the main goal is to empower both the horse and the human. She believes that opening our awareness to the possibilities of a more conscious and consensual relationship with our horses will reflect on our interpersonal relationships as well as our relationships with ourselves. What I love about Tara is that she is so in tune with herself, is unapologetically authentic and sees the world through a lens of love and kindness. I know you're going to love this episode. We talk about so much. We discuss Tara's start in traditional ways of training horses and competitive dressage, what she learned from riding amongst a herd of beautiful Frisians in the desert, the story behind Unbridled Goddess from a $250 beautiful but traumatized mare Misa, the beginning of her journey to working with horses in a way that gives the horse autonomy, balancing the use of negative and positive reinforcement, all the controversial questions as usual, the importance of horse and human emotions in training and in life, what's important for horses happiness, who inspires her, what books and resources she recommends, and so much more. I know you're going to love this episode, so let's dive in. Welcome, Tara, to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm super excited. Let's get stuck into the first question. So can you tell us about your horse journey to date, when you got into horses, how you got into horsemanship and what has led to where you are today? Oh gosh, that's a long, uh, long and loaded history. But um, I started out uh, before I could walk, actually, I was one of those people who was lucky enough to be uh, born into a horsey family. So my mom uh, is a horsewoman and husband for her whole life. And so we grew up around horses. My whole family did. And, um, yeah, I was able to lucky enough to be around them from a young age and kind of learn to ride alongside learning to walk and just got to, got to experience learning how to be a, a horsewoman throughout the course of my childhood, which I think shaped who I was. Um, I got to, I got to start out in very traditional horsemanship, but um, kind of always had, you know, the 
the draw towards hopping on bareback and riding around and going off and adventuring in the in the hills and and always had that little wild streak, but really got focused in on dressage and competing um, in my teens. And uh, yeah, I I had a really incredible horse growing up who my family actually still has. He's the same age as me. We got each we got him when I was seven, and we kind of grew up together. And um, he's now retired and living with my parents, so he's kind of like the horse I credit most of my really shaped who I who I was as a horsewoman um and uh you know how it is when you get a young child a young horse to grow together we had lots of trials and tribulations but um I think that like getting to have a horse who I connected with emotionally on such a deep level and was able to kind of explore and experiment with was so um it was so important to the person I kind of grew up to be um, but yeah, the, uh, getting to do competitive dressage kind of changed me a little bit for a while. I'm really glad I got to, I'm really glad I got to experience it. And I'm, I'm really glad that I kind of dove really deep into that. Um, but, uh, transitioning over from my childhood horse into kind of like my grown up horse, you know, I really wanted a warm blood and, and I ended up with a beautiful Oldenburg who, um, we had some really fantastic moments together, but also a lot of challenges. He was looking back now with everything I know, I can recognize that he was really shut down and uh, was very explosive because of how shut down he was. So it was this, I, he was 17, three hands and I'm five foot tall. So it was this like, you know, kind of battle of the wills all the time. And it, it, it didn't feel very good. So it was this like many years of, um, feeling like something wasn't right and not being able, like not having the skills and not having the mentorship to be able to make a difference in our relationship. And, uh, yeah, we actually, I ended up retiring him at 14 because he was just like so explosive and, you know, quote unquote dangerous. I had so many trainers tell me he was dangerous and should be put down and all this stuff. And, um, it kind of broke my heart. Actually, it totally broke my heart. Um, getting to, feeling like I let him down and, and like losing a friend. Um, I found a really great uh, retirement home for him. So he's living a happy life. But looking back now, I really, really wish I had this, the skills I have now to be able to help him. I feel like I could have gotten through to him, but he was kind of my wake up horse. Um, but it wouldn't happen for a couple of years. I actually was so sad about his, the way we kind of had to end things that I actually kind of gave up on horsemanship for probably about two years um, before I um, I found a really wonderful woman who let me work on her ranch. And she had this beautiful ranch with thousands of acres and she had a herd of Frisians that they just were like wild and free and she just let them be horses. And, you know, she rode bitless and it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to anything like that. And, um, it was actually amazing the first day that I worked with her. She put me up on her mare in the halter and turned the whole herd out onto like a thousand acres and was like, go learn to be a part of the herd. Like, go see what their, you know, behaviors and interactions are like. And it was just magical. Like, I'm all wide-eyed and completely blown away and kind of terrified, but also I don't want to, you know, 
like to show this woman that I'm afraid. So I'm like, okay, sure. Bear back and halter. I'm just going to go like follow this herd as they trot off into the like high desert. And um, it was the most beautiful, quiet, powerful afternoon of my life. And like, I just cherish that mem- memory so much. And that was like the first time I'd ever really seen a herd that was interacting and living and supporting each other as a, as a unit. So um, yeah, she was getting to see what was possible after kind of coming from the opposite end of the spectrum of like being in a competitive barn with horses and stalls and having the experience I did with Oliver, my Oldenburg and kind of losing him and just getting to see like how this is how it should be, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty spectacular. In that herd full of Frisians in the middle of the desert, just soaking that up. What did you, what did you learn from the herd? Well, one of the things that was really interesting was um, having that much space and being inhabiting that much space with the horses and um, all of the kind of skills that I had in um, my previous work as in general, like working with horses, your horses couldn't really escape from you, you know? So like, it didn't really matter how bad you were to them. There was no real option for them. I mean, they could act up under saddle and you might have to walk them in a chain and they might be hard to catch even in their stall, but, and not all of them were like that, of course, but like you didn't, they didn't have an option to not participate really. And these horses, if you didn't, if they didn't like how you worked with them that the time before they're like I'm not coming anywhere near you I have acres and acres and acres to put in between myself and I do you want to go get an ATV and chase me or do you want to be nice to me <laughs> and um the the really interesting thing was the pace that that ranch was at was just it was on horse time there was no pressure to get anything done there was no we have to prepare for the it's really all about like healing the horses and um allowing them to be whole and if anything happened above that, that was all fine and dandy, but it was just a, it was a bonus on top of a, the well-being of the horse really coming first, which was very novel to me. Wow. And so how can a ranch run like that? Like what was the purpose of it? Was it just for breeding or did they do competition? How can a ranch sort of, it feels funny saying ranch, I would say ranch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'm sort of picturing this beautiful brunch um with these lovely horses and everyone's able to connect with them and they have a very natural lifestyle but i'm sure that there was an underlying purpose perhaps um that was actually one of the most interesting things is there really wasn't which um was also the first time i'd ever encountered that um yeah. it was really a passion ranch um ranch uh, <laughs> No, this woman, she, she had a, it was a rescue. So she did take in horses. So she had, um, she had one horse who had had EPM, um, a Frisian who had EPM. She focused mainly on Frisians, but she did have a couple other breeds in there. Um, so she, she did some rehabilitation on horses who were kind of like either their owners didn't necessarily have the capability or they just felt like they, their horses wouldn't necessarily be able to show anymore. So they came to this ranch and, um, and then she did also have a couple like mares that she would occasionally breed. And, and um, you know, it was this like, it was a passion of hers. Frisians were a passion of hers. So she had the 
these horses that she didn't, she wasn't like trying to breed to make money or anything like that, but she did have some really incredible, incredible bloodlines that she was um, perpetuating. And, um, and then she also occasionally did uh, like therapy work. So she did some, some work with veterans and, and equine therapy. So it was this really amazing time experiencing a, a, a horse ranch or a, a facility that wasn't just all about like pumping out horses yeah. who were like really good at something. It was like, mm. these horses are whole, we're getting them to full health. And then if they want to participate in healing sessions, they can, but they also don't have to. I love that. So, that sounds yeah. amazing. So what happened next from experiencing what you did with the Frisians at that ranch um, to then where you are now, like what sort of bridged that gap? Um, well, I actually took another year or two off after um, being at that ranch. Mostly like I couldn't really bring myself to get another horse and, and get myself back into the horse world that I knew. And I also, I just really didn't have any idea of a way to find a place that was anything like that. How was I gonna give my horse what those horses had? All I knew was, you know, maybe if you were lucky, it was a stall with a run and you got turned out for a couple hours a day. And I didn't really know how to find anything other than that. And I didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel like I could provide the kind of life that I wanted to for my horses. So I just didn't really do that anymore. Um, and that was really hard. I, I, sometimes I look back and I'm like, what did I do? What did I do in all that time? Like, I just didn't yeah. have horses. What is that? What does but, that um, look like? <laughs> A lot of free time, I guess. Yeah, I had a lot of money as well. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Um, no, I quickly saved all that up and then spent it on my the next. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but then amazingly, actually, I uh, I got back into horses after I started dating my now fiance, who was really into horses, which is kind of rare, especially in um, I live in like very rural Northern California, and so it's kind of rare to meet someone like that who is also, you know, kind of like-minded, like is interested in, in alternative lifestyles. And, um, he was really into horsemanship. And so when we started dating seriously, he was like, let's just get horses. And so of course, you know, I knew he was the one immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can kind of credit him for getting me back into it. And, um, I always joke, I'm like, this is your fault. You know, I'm out with the horses all day long. This is you, you did this. <laughs> yeah. You can just blame him. <laughs> Yeah. But then, um, yeah, I, I kind of slowly got back into horses and then was looking into getting a horse for as a, actually as a pack animal um, to bring up into the mountains. And I stumbled across, I was looking for like kind of like project horses. Like I wasn't looking to spend a lot of money on a horse. So I stumbled across um, this stunningly gorgeous Andalusian mare for $250. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, red flag number one is that mm -hmm. an Andalusian mare is this much money? And I'm looking at the um, like the description, and it's basically like, yeah, she's ready for a rider. Any, just like you know, she's a certain type of person, but she's like pretty much ready to go. And I I immediately got in the car and I drove 18 hours to go see her because I was so drawn to her. And um, when I arrived, it was evening, <clears throat> and there was she was in a round pen and there was like a big floodlight behind her around her but she was just galloping around the round pen like in a pure panic with like this dust flying up everywhere in the floodlight so all you could see is like her outline like a silhouette of her just like flying around this round pen like just a million miles an hour 
And um, I picked my mom up on the way down to, to drive there because she's like my horsewoman mentor. And uh, I looked at her and I was like, oh, God, I love her already. <laughs> so, of course, um, with all the red flags and, and, you know, the first moment of seeing her when I when I did meet her in daylight, finally, I was like, this is a horse who has a lot of trauma. But I could not leave her. So I ended up uh, forking over 250 bucks for her and um, bringing her home. And that's Misa. So if you've followed my page, you may have seen her on there. She's the, she's my inspiration for everything. Uh, and she is the unbridled goddess. I have to like always clarify that with people. Like she's my unbridled goddess. It's not me, but um, <laughs> yeah, she was really, really, really traumatized from a very, very, um, I would classify it as extremely abusive um, place where she had come from. Where she, um, well, to start with, every time they haltered her or needed to halter her, they would rope her feet. Um, so they would rope a leg and then they would hobble her. Um, and so and that was the only way that you could get a halter on her. And then uh, that was how they did everything. They hobbled her or they put her in stocks to do anything to her. Um, and they round penned the absolute shit out of her. So she really only had two modes, galloping around you or like staring at you, but leaning backwards and like shaking and shivering because she knew she was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to give you her eyes and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, so if you didn't have a rope and you didn't know how to throw a rope and catch her hoof, then you really couldn't catch her at all. Um, and uh, when I brought her home, I made a promise to her. I said, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that to you, no matter what. I will never, ever do that to you again. I will never, never hobble you. I will never take away your autonomy. And so that was kind of the beginning of this journey was like <laughs> I brought her home and turned her out in a two and a half acre pasture, which two and a half acres in a horse that absolutely has no desire to be anywhere close to you is a lot of room. <laughs> yes. Wow. So that was kind of the start of like just approaching horsemanship in a different way was I just, I had seen what she had been through. I had heard what she'd been through. And then of course, later on, I found out even more of what she had been through. And I just decided that I just wasn't going to put her through anything like that. It had to be on her terms and it would, I would stick with it for as long as it took. Wow. How long did it take in that two and a half acre paddock before you could actually get close to her? Um, it took about a month for her to want to even like, near me I think we had our first touch after about a month mm -hmm. um and it took another month after that for her to be okay with um with any sort of like rope being attached to me um so we could start working on haltering yeah. and uh the amazing thing was like during those two months I really focused on encouraging or kind of I try to think of it as like explaining through my actions that I was never going to to put her um I was never going to put my needs ahead of her needs and that it was, there was no, uh, there was no agenda. And so she kind of learned that over the course of that two months. And I was able to actually introduce her to positive reinforcement through over the course of those months. And that was a really big turning point in being able for her to understand that like, A, I was never going to force her to do anything and B, there was kind of a nice incentive to being around me. She started to make strides pretty quickly after that. So within, after the first two months we were, 
able to halter and lead and like go other places. And once we could go other places, we just started walking and we would just go walk and explore. And we went, we're really lucky. We live just a couple blocks from uh, like thousands of acres of redwood forest. So amazing. We would just hop out there and just like walk for ages and just explore everything. And she just slowly started to understand that like we would go places together and she was the leader. So that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It was a really amazing process. Do you feel like there is still some trauma in there? Or definitely. Yeah, Yeah, it's I've had her now for five years, I think. Um and she I mean that she experienced like systematic abuse. Um for it wasn't a super long time. She was actually a little bit of backstory, she was feral. Um on a ranch that ended up getting all the animals seized off of it for hoarding. Um, so they were like underfed, you know, they kind of had just like not fed these horses and it was all these horses out and um, just like stallions in with mares and mares in with their dads and all this sort of stuff. So oh it was gosh. kind of a, it was a mess. Um, but uh, so she was kind of untouched and then she was brought in by animal control. She was seized and they were going to put her down um, because her and pretty much every they would just go into like a blind panic because it's not clear. I don't know much about her history there, but if they had had bad handling there or if they just had never been handled and they were put into this dangerous situation, there were like horses running through panels and running over people and all the stuff. It was a kind of a mess. And so they were going to put all of them down because they were deemed, uh, you know, a danger to humans. So they kind of put out this little notice that said, if, if you, can come with a trailer and get any horse on this trailer, like they're yours. And um, the person who went and got her got two other horses too. And um, I think that they, that person didn't think they were doing a bad thing. They thought that they were giving these horses like a new lease on life, but the methods of, you know, handling these horses were just atrocious. I mean, to me, even then, even back before I really like had this whole revolution of my methods, it was like, wow, you did what to this horse? Like, oh, you, you hobbled her, put a pack saddle on her, strapped 200 pounds of salt and then round tender for an hour. Like, holy shit, that's insane. Like any horse, especially a horse like her, who's so sensitive and she's so, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had any experience with Andalusians, but they just have this (laughs) <laughs> they they're amazing yeah. the like the brio and the the like i mean they're kind of like an unbreakable horse like if there's any breed of horse that isn't able to be broken it's an andalusian and to put a horse like that into a situation where that's how they're being handled is just it's like obviously with any horse it's horrible but there are some horses that get put in a situation like that and they submit and they shut down and they become helpless mm-hmm. and that's heartbreaking but then there's also horses who have the opposite where you do that to them and it just, they will never stop fighting you. And that was how she was. She was just unbreakable. And that's why they sold her. They were like, we put her in this program for six months and she just every day being handled like this and she's just not changing. But yet they advertised her as ready for a rider. <laughs> oh yeah. I know. I'm like, you want to get on that horse? Like I, you would die. Like she would just, the, the level I've never seen a horse that goes until I had met her and seen her in that environment, I had never seen the type of, when people say blind panic, but they don't see anything. They're so frantic and they're so scared. And of course now, you know, when I, when I look at like 
um, like helicopter roundups, like that type of, you see horses like climbing over panels there and that kind of thing. That's the type of blind panic that I saw in her. And it was just so heart-wrenching to see that. And um, so of course that sort of trauma And if you see her now, you would almost not be able to like recognize the type of horse she is. She like comes up to you, even stranger. She comes up, she like rub her body on you, turn around and be like, scratch my butt. You know, she loves, <laughs> she loves people and she's like friendly and she wants to, she loves giving kisses to just like come up and give you a kiss on the cheek and beautiful. That's just like so, nice. so sweet. But, um, she definitely has triggers still that I, um, I am open to like just being, accepting of them for as long as they need to and i think on like on a healing journey like hers it might be you know five more years or ten more years or it might never go away and that's okay what um, history is well it depends it's she's very much um you know trigger stacking for her is a huge thing but um any sort of uh <laughs> mostly it's like if you have that intention in your heart of like i'm gonna come in here and do something to you like i need to get something done it can be, it can range anywhere from a smile to her being like, I'm just not going to engage with you that much to um, if you go in there like that, or if you're in like a really bad place, or if someone else had to go in there and catch her in like a traditional way of like, I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to put a halter on her. She would just hightail it out of there. And um, it's not really that extreme looking now to me. I, when I see it, I'm like, okay, I can see that she is fully in a flight state and I can see that her like trauma response has been triggered and but like a lot of people just be like oh she's just you know trotting off and she'll turn around and look at you and they think like oh look there she is she's like giving you her eyes and she's but to me I see that and I'm like I see that as her old patterns of behavior where she's like she is fleeing but then she's trying to preserve herself at the same time um and this is like for for her and I it's a very rare occasion and a lot of times you know she's my she's kind of my like um she's like my touchstone emotionally so if i go in there and there's even a hint of that kind of like body language in her even if she does come up to me if there's that hint of like hesitation i'm like okay i need to come in and check in with my body and see what i'm feeling and then usually as soon as i become present in myself it's like i can identify what it was in my body that was kind of giving her that signal that there was some sort of like untoward intention there or even like an incongruence. Like if I'm not addressing something in my life and I go in there and want to connect with her, there's like that just ever so subtle wall that goes up where she doesn't want to fully engage. Whereas, and it's very obvious with her because when she engages with you, it's like her whole heart just spills out and is like beautiful. That's so nice. Wow. So how about we move on to your personal training approach or philosophy with horses? You've sort of touched on it, but can you tell us a little bit more about what, what it is you do now with horses? How would you describe your training approach? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, Misa was kind of the like starting horse for me. Um, she was really the one that I, I had to completely change everything that I did, you know, even though I kind of thought, thought of myself as like coming from a natural horsemanship approach and, all this sort of stuff. And I still, I had to go even further to breaking down into, I needed to explore territories that I was not aware of um, even existed or were possible in the equine realm. Um, and since then I've, you know, expanded my herd of rescue dementia horses. I've now started working with other horses over the last 
gosh, actually, like, wow, it's been like two and a half years. I was about to say this past year, but <laughs> time has flown. Um, yeah, like the last two and a half years, I, I now um, work with, we're training other people's horses as well. And uh, I've gone through a lot of changes over the last five years, even. Um, when I started with Mesa, I, it's really interesting because I didn't go in into it with any sort of like, I'm going to try positive reinforcement with her. I'm going to try force free with her, anything like that. I really, I steered clear of <laughs> kind of funny. I actually purposely decided not to like read any books or try to like follow any methodology because I'm such a, that's my personality of like, I want to research everything and like understand how to do it. And what I decided with Misa, which is so counter to like everything I've ever done in my life before was I said, you set the stage for everything. You tell me what works and what doesn't work. And you tell me how to go through this. And the purity of doing that with a horse that is so unapologetically bothered by humans was um, really powerful. And the interesting thing was like, I kind of went through like a full year with her of like developing this and just exploring, really exploring the, the kind of place where um, more like ethical horsemanship and emotional horsemanship meets. So it's, I don't even really know how to like say exactly what it is I do, but um, I, I discovered with Misa that the, one of the keys to helping her heal has been through movement um, and movement as their expression of emotion and expression, expression of connection with the other person that you're dancing with or horse that you're dancing with. Um, that was kind of like where we really went deep was just going, what does it, what does it feel like to drop every expectation of like, we're doing dressage or we're doing, you know, Western riding or we, we're doing jumping or anything like that. Drop all of that to even drop teaching tricks or any, drop all of it and just move with the horse and connect into and like sink into that feeling of when all of your cells feel like it's connected to all the cells of the horse and you can move your limb or take a breath or turn your shoulder ever so slightly and it's just like a perfect connection with the horse because of something intrinsically rewarding. That was what I kind of learned how to start the process of with Misa in that first year. And then getting to kind of kind of crawl out of my little little hole in the woods where I had, you know, hung out with Misa and just learned from her for the, the whole year and really kind of stayed away from kind of getting too much into my head because that's I, I can kind of get very much into like, well, I'm going to just think my way through this and learning how to, how to release that and tap into that emotional intuitive side of things was really like, that was the first step that I had to take and go really deep on. And then from there I was able to kind of come back to my love, which is like figuring out scientific ways and <laughs> studies that can support all of that sort of stuff. And I dove really deep into positive reinforcement and, um, Kind of marrying that with classical dressage and then molding all of that together with what I had discovered with Misa, which is figuring out a way to, to connect with the horse in a way that's intrinsically rewarding and to learn how to move with them in a way that's kind of un, unbridled, I guess. <laughs> um, yes. You know, Unforced, like, not, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and 
and then it's been a, a whole transition to or transformation of I think I became really afraid of I became really afraid of pushing horses um, because of kind of my guilt and shame about everything that I had done prior. I mean, so many things that I, I have so much shame about. And I was so afraid of bringing that into my work with Nisa that um, I think with her, it was really necessary for me to like not push at all, like to let her lead completely. And then the interesting thing is I'm okay with um, taking the lead sometimes, not in a way that's like, I'm going to tell you what to do all the time, but to be able to um, be like a dance partner where you're not just following all the time and being passive, but to be like engaged in participating and not just passively following. So it's, it's been a, a really interesting, um, it's been a really interesting road in terms of like developing my style of horsemanship and what I do. And I think having so many different personalities of horses to work with and being really blessed with having people trust their horses with me and, and trust the process. It's been really incredible to kind of find my footing and, and find a way to um, like help horses become even more full of themselves. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's interesting you mentioned the dance partner because I did a father-daughter dance for my wedding with my dad and was oh. choreographed and we had a lot of dance lessons and um, with a professional and um, no offense, dad, but sometimes he was a bit clumsy <laughs> and it felt awkward and at times when we were learning. And then when I would dance with the teacher who was helping us, even though he was a little firmer, it felt good. And I felt good because I was like, wow, I can dance. Even though I couldn't, he was just leading me. He made yeah. me feel good dancing. So I'd imagine it would feel the same for a horse with someone who's, you know, a leader, not in the in the boss kind of way, like I'll, you know, do what I say, but in a guiding kind of manner. In a yeah. Positive guidance. Yeah. So that's cool. And um, you mentioned that you didn't really follow kind of a system or a method with Mesa, but um, could you tell us, I'm sure that you've had some mentors in the past or some methods or something you've followed and, and learned from. Can you tell us about what has helped you along the way? Yeah. Um, well, it's <laughs> kind of complicated. I've, I've um, for a long time, I've kind of just done things very much like on my own and mm -hmm. uh, really learning about positive reinforcement, I think has been a huge part of, of um, why I've been able to get really comfortable in, in this kind of mode of working with horses because, I mean, I spent the first 20-something years of my life getting really comfortable with using negative reinforcement to the detriment of the horse in a lot of ways, but also um, you become really skilled in, in applying and releasing and all the, you know, it's whatever mode of horsemanship you're, you're in, I think there is something to be said about becoming really, really, really skilled in. So um, to me, just getting really comfortable with applying positive reinforcement and like the whole, just educating myself on how to be successful and fair and clear with my horse in this new kind of way of communicating. Um, that was, that was really big. Um, I really, honestly, I kind of, I just say that the horses are my biggest teacher and I I find that I'm really lucky in that I have a lot of horses at my kind of uh 
fingertips. Like I personally, I think I have, I think I have seven uh, of my own. And then I have a couple that are projects. And then um, I have, a, you know, rotating anywhere from two to five training horses at a time. And so just getting to over the past couple of years, like truly being open to learning from the horse, like learning how to read the horse's body language and not through like, not through the old lens of reading horse's body language, but becoming more um, educated on, on um, the psychology of horses and understanding what they're trying to say. And then developing a way to kind of give them a voice so that they can literally tell me things um, has been really the biggest learning tool that I've had, I think. And that's part of why I've kind of tried to stay um, not away from like methodologies or anything. I do love learning about all that sort of stuff, but really letting the horse be the guide has been um, something I've found to be really important for me. Um, but I do have just like lots of people who inspire me and who um, I think I, of course, pull from all the different teachers that I've had. Um, I desperately wish there was more like positive reinforcement based teachers because I think um, I'm lucky enough to find a lot of teachers who are willing to let me work with them through the kind of lens of not not that I only use positive reinforcement, but when you come to like a trainer or a teacher or a mentor and you say, I want to use positive reinforcement kind of a lot, they think of you as like, oh, she only does like clicker training or she only does positive reinforcement. Um, or but, they don't know what positive reinforcement is and they go, oh yeah, I use positive reinforcement as in praise. And it's like, actually, it's just more than, it's more than that. <laughs> totally. Or my favorite, which is, uh, <laughs> One of my mentors, Arna Kutz, who's in Germany, I remember him being like, I don't use positive reinforcement. And then I went and I trained with him and I was like, you, yes, totally, you, use positive, you totally use positive reinforcement. He's like, so we'll have to have a conversation about this later. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've, I've been really lucky to have people who are willing to kind of tweak their their um, their ways of, of working to kind of... Um, <laughs> To kind of placate how I am as like a you know crazy horse girl. <laughs> so in what way do you use negative reinforcement now? Um, I try to keep it really minimal uh, but I am once the horse to me once the horse has autonomy like once they've been through my program long enough to know that they can say no there is no punishment for saying no and then we will find an alternative um, like if they say no, I don't just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. Like to me, that's not an authentic, no, uh, authentic yes. If you just keep asking until you get a yes. Mm. Um, so uh, like my horses all kind of have this understanding of if they don't want to do something, they just don't do it. And a lot of times they want to do something else because they don't want to end the session. So we also have um, start and stop, start and stop signals for our sessions. Mm -hmm. So being able to say, I don't want to do this one thing um, or I don't like how you're doing this one thing, but we're going to do something else. And then I follow that. And so they, once they kind of have that basis, um, then I do start to feel a little bit more comfortable in like, okay, can I ask for something with like my body pressure and that sort of thing where if I can, if, if the horse is ready for it, if they're comfortable with it, if they feel like they have the ability to say no, if they need to, I'll start um, incorporating use of, of more body pressure or, if the horse doesn't have any negative, um, like negative connotations with like a, a lunge whip or a, a stick, sometimes I'll use that as like, we'll kind of 
switch back and forth between like using it as a target or like learning how to target towards it or uh, move away from it. Um, but I only really do that if they haven't had a negative experience with the whip um, because so many of the horses that do come to me like are very, very stressed by the presence of a whip. So that's kind of more, more rare, but um, you know, do I do try them with the whip or do you, if they've had a negative experience, do you just leave that out completely? Um, usually I start with just leaving it out completely and then I'll start to re like reincorporate it sometimes um, using like counter conditioning and um, I do, I use targets a lot in my training. So I'll, a lot of times I'll teach even like the horses who have had no negative connotations with the whip, if they have never experienced, you know, um, being hit with a whip or having anything, uh, escalating, then, um, I'll start using it as a target. And so that, ah, that's clever horses for other people, or I'm, working with horses for people who want to sell them or something like that. And so I want the horse to be able to understand how to speak like human talk in yeah. the regular world. And yeah. I don't want them to be like only, uh, obviously I would love it if a home that I find for my horses would incorporate positive reinforcement. But the reality of the horse world is that like 90% of the people who are looking for a horse or can offer a horse a home are hoping to be able to have some sort of language that they can already speak with the horse. So being able to kind of um, like transition my cues over, like starting them with positive reinforcement and then turn the transitioning over to tactile cues and then being able to use non-escalating negative reinforcement. That's obviously the um, caveat to all of the negative reinforcement I use is that there's, it's not escalating and it's non-escalating negative reinforcement and it's only used when the horse is like really ready for it, but I'm not, like opposed to it and um the more advanced the horses get uh the more uh robust i feel like they are emotionally then we can engage in it a little more but then there are some horses like misa who just like shuts down the moment you put pressure on her it has to be everything has to be an open invitation it has to be an open hand where she's I kind of feel like with her it's like you have to create a vacuum and so it's her learning to like fill up that space and not the other way around. You can't push against her and I mean, you can, you can literally touch her and have her move over, of course, but like um, the negative reinforcement that we use, that I use with her is so minimal because it can so quickly lead to her being triggered. Mm, yes. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like a lot of people think that even a light pressure isn't negative reinforcement, but it is right. Even just yeah. the lightest amount of pressure is still pressure at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Earlier you were talking about the shame that you feel around things that you've done with horses in the past. Can you tell us what is something you once did with horses that you now no longer do? And what are some of the biggest mistakes you see other people making with horses? Sure. Um, I think the the biggest mistake I've made with horses in the past has been um, not making space for emotions in the work that we've done. So however that looks, whether that's me completely overlooking their emotional state or their emotional needs, or whether it's me overlooking my own emotional needs and emotional state, um, to me, that's kind of the root of all of the stuff, all of the awful shit that I did as, um, you know, a horse. rooted in that, like either not acknowledging what my horse's horse was ready for or not incorporating a true understanding of how they were feeling into training. Cause I think 
I think if you have a good understanding of how your horse truly feels on the inside and you allow that to change how you train, there's almost like if you follow the horse's emotions, you are not going to all of the, the like unethical stuff that we see, it wouldn't exist if you like truly follow that. And of course that's so hard to do in this world. Like we're, you know, society itself, it really raises us to kind of ignore our emotional needs. Um, so it's, it's a constant learning. Um, it's a constant learning journey. And I think I'm definitely still on that now, but um, yeah, that's definitely a huge root of, you know, there's specific instances of like where you're just, using to me unethical means like I used to I used to go through a pair of gloves a week in my dressage training where like they would just wear holes through my ring finger because the contact was so strong and like I think about that now and I think about how like the horses that I train now are have never experienced that in my hands and like I'm so grateful to be able to say that and I'm so grateful I'm honestly grateful for the shame that I carry because it's made me who I am today because I can now look back and remember what I've done. And it keeps me so much more um, like honest and, and um, aware of what I'm doing because I'm so deeply don't want to become what I used to. Um, and then let's see one of the, sorry, what was the, the second part of that question was the mistakes that you see other people making. Um. I think that too um, applies to a lot of people. You know, we, as a, as a people, as a, as humans, yeah. <laughs> as a race in, in this world, as it stands today, like we're so dismissive of emotions and emotional needs. And um, I think like one of my biggest pet peeves is the saying, like, check your emotions at the gate or like check your emotions at the barn door and never, never bring that in. And I think that it's such a sad thing that people are missing out on the opportunity for processing their emotions with alongside horses. I think they're like the most incredible. Um, I, I work with this really wonderful woman um, called Lillian Hadar on a project called the invisible ride. And um, she found my Instagram and, and we talked about this project it's called the invisible ride and she explained to me like this is the ride that horses take us on and like the second she said that it, everything just clicked into place of like the idea that you can walk into a barn and the horses are not only willing to carry us physically like the fact that horses are willing to carry us on their backs and put up with everything that we do do to them in our journey to become better horsewomen horsemen um they're not only willing to do that, but they are willing to take us, take our emotions and like carry us. They, they're willing to do that for us. And I think not taking that invitation is such a shame because it can lead to such a deep and meaningful and beautiful relationship filled with so much healing with our horses. And so when we talk about like leaving our emotions behind or, or kind of like not being the master of our emotions, we really are are short selling ourselves in this experience of being around horses when they're so willing to help us through learning how to become emotionally intelligent beings again. So, you know, I think it, it's easy to frame that as a mistake, but it's also something that we're learned. We learn through society and we learn through being hurt. So I think it's almost more like a wound. And I really, really, really hope that we as 
the equestrian community is open to healing that wound. And I think that it's also a beautiful opportunity to heal a wound that has kind of um, plagued our world and society in the past, uh, you know, I don't know how many hundred years, but I'm sure, I'm sure at some point there are some communities that are really beautifully in touch with their emotions. But I really think that that's a, I think that's one of the things that I lament the most when I look out on horsemanship. Mm, that's so interesting. And you do hear that a lot. People say, you know, don't take your emotions to horses, leave them at the gate. But I find myself, well, I suppose we're always having an emotional experience. So whenever I've had a day where I've you know, had a big day, I'm feeling a bit frazzled, I'll just tell my horses, I'm like, guys, I've had a really big day today. Forgive me <laughs> before I even start. I can't leave that behind. You carry it with you. <laughs> no. And I think there's actually, I love that so much because I, I tell my students all the time, like, you should verbalize, you know, tell your horse what you're feeling. Like if you're frustrated with them or you're scared or you're feeling like, you know, all these bad emotions that like we're not supposed to have as equestrians of like you show up and if you say, if you take your horse, you go into their living situation and you say, look, I just had the worst day at work and I'm really tired and uh, I really want to have a really good ride right now. So I, now to do something that's gonna make me feel better you're gonna have so much of a better time with your horse because and it's not even about like whether your horse understands you or not which that's a whole other question it's you becoming in touch with what you are feeling on the inside and bringing that from something that's like bubbling way down in your tummy that you are not addressing and bringing it up to your conscious awareness is just like even just doing that if you don't do anything else if you don't work on taking deeper breaths if you don't work on grounding yourself if all you do is verbalize the thing that you're feeling in that moment, like you're going to have a better time. Yeah. And at an absolute minimum, you're just going to feel better by just releasing that. So <laughs> yeah, totally. it's such a good practice. Speaking of emotional needs of horses and humans, what do you think makes a happy horse? Um, well, I, I think that the very basis of it, they should have um, freedom, friends, forage and safety, feeling able to feel safe. Um, and I really think like that is something that's so underrated in our equestrian community is like the horses should have access to food all the time or not all necessarily all the time, but minimum of 18 hours a day, they should have access to some sort of food that they're able to chew and process through their system. That's like bare minimum step number one. Um, ideally they have enough room to move around and, uh, you know, express themselves and, and travel around and have friends they should be able to have contact and you know i have started to at the beginning of my uh kind of journey into bringing horses into my ranch and setting up a, a you know a, a truly rewarding living situation for them i was like they all have to be out together all the time now i have i now have four horses five horses who are with me that need to have set amounts of time where they are not uh, in with other horses at the same time because of dietary needs. So they need to be able to have like time to eat on their own and so on and so forth. And juggling like horses needs like that, the individual needs of a horse and being a boarding and training facility and having other horses. So it's like, I've had to figure out how to develop a system where they still have access to um, social contact. Cause I think that's so important, especially right now I have two stallions at my property and for them to be able to have 24 seven access to social contact where they can groom each other and also still have time where they can be separate from 
uh, horses, other horses and be able to meet their dietary or uh, medical restrictions. Um, it's been, you know, a whole process, but learning how to do that and experimenting around with that and seeing the it's so worth it and being able to gift that to them. Um, but yeah, those are like kind of the non-negotiables to me for, for a happy horse. Um, and then beyond that too, the, when you can train them with autonomy and being able to give them freedom of choice and freedom of participation, like, uh, the, I wish it's the icing on the cake, but also to me, it's like, it's kind of slowly becoming my next non-negotiable of like, I wish I could gift everyone in the entire equestrian community an opportunity to feel the like joy that exudes off of a horse that totally owns their movement and is like rocking their dance next to you completely at liberty. Like, oh, the best feeling ever. (laughs) And like, you can, you're literally just high on joy because you can feel them just like they're at their peak experience too. And it's so, you know, you can't necessarily have that without having all the rest of it. Like they have to be happy in themselves in their other, you know, 23 and a half hours a day. Mm-hmm. So that then when they come in and, and have that experience, it's just heightened that much more. Yes, absolutely. At a baseline, your horse has to be happy and it's everyday life before you can, I guess, expect them to enjoy your sessions with you. So yeah, that's a lot of people have mentioned that on the, on the podcast. So um what do you think is your favorite thing to do with horses? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, if I'm being selfish, it's totally riding at liberty because that's just like such an amazing feeling. Um, but I also like, I honor that not every horse is open to being ridden. So the next greatest thing is of course, just like experiencing that same joy and movement and joy and uh, like autonomy and movement on the ground beside them. Both of those are my favorite. Yes. Love that. Mm. And moving on to, I always ask controversial questions. Can you tell us your thoughts on the bits versus bitless debate? Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) this is actually a really interesting one for me because I am for a really long time. I've been like stark bitless only like hundred percent. No question about it. Um, and my horses are all trained bitless. Um, now the interesting thing has been in transitioning over into teaching more horses that are not mine, that I don't have full um, contr- you know, control over how they, <laughs> like the only time I'll use that word, <laughs> yeah. uh, control over how I like what I decide to use with them. Um, I actually made the decision. It was really hard for me to make the decision to be willing to work with students who chose to wear bits. Um, because, and I'm white in what I expect of people uh, in the same way that I wouldn't expect a horse to just understand what I'm talking about at Liberty. Mm. Um, and so learning to meet the people where they are and not just meeting the horses where they are has been a part of the process. Um, and through that, it's been really interesting in, as I've kind of also separate to my learning journey in like Liberty and um, kind of more autonomous based training. I also still do train with um, like non or very traditional trainers. Like I have my mentor in Europe, Arna. And like when I went and rode with him, all of his horses have are incredibly highly trained and they ride on the curb. And so it was this really interesting process for me. Like I had this immense guilt going and riding these horses and these like big curb bits. But also it started me on this um, learning journey of like, if you're going to use a bit, it 
should be the appropriate bit for your horse. And that doesn't just mean like a fat loose ring snaffle for everybody. That means like you should have somebody who is very educated in bits come and analyze the uh, anatomy of your horse's mouth and find a bit that's suitable for you that doesn't pinch, that doesn't have, you know, angles or places where like it causes unnecessary pressure points um, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's definitely a, as a personal choice, I prefer bitless. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there are ways that we can ethically, you know, it's, it's always based on the idea of the horse having autonomy. Can the horse choose not to participate in this? To me, that's like the baseline of it. But um, you can consciously, I think is a better word, use a bit um, if you are willing to become a skilled enough rider for it. Like you need to be able to know how to use the bit in an appropriate manner and to be able to not inappropriately use it because that's the other thing. And this is where that like mastering your emotions, you don't need to become the master of your emotions, you need to become so in touch with your emotions that you don't allow yourself to be subconsciously ruled by them so that you aren't taking out your frustration or, you know, using, I think I'm always going to come back to that autonomy. Like if you should never be forcing your horse into a shape, whether it's a bitless bridle or a bitted bridle, it doesn't matter if you're, if you have 20 pounds of pressure on each rein on a side pole to force your horse into frame, and you're digging into that horse's side with your inside leg, that's not any better to me. I mean, yes, you may be causing less pain potentially, but you are still putting that horse in a position where they do not have autonomy and they're not the concepts of self-carriage really comes into play. And if you go back and you're studying the, the masters of horsemanship, they all have such strict requirements on how to train a horse. And there's a reason for that because there's so many quick and dirty ways to do it, especially when you do have a bit, or if you're willing to use bitless options that are a little bit more severe, there's so many quick and dirty ways to get your horse to like comply with what you want and to look quote, you know, to look like you want it to look. Um, So I think at the end of the day, it's not necessarily so much about bit versus bitless, but rather about like how deep you're willing to go into analyzing your own horsemanship and what you want and how you're willing to get that. Mm. And also how, how how educated you are on all of that stuff because i know like for me personally even i've been i didn't know much about bits and i used them for a really long time you know like i didn't understand the importance of like finding a mouthpiece that was really um appropriate for your horse's mouth and all that sort of stuff and i I do think that's also on the other side of the coin it's also important to find bitless bridles that are appropriate for your horse and um, you know, being willing to listen to them if they're expressing discomfort and all that sort of stuff, because not every bitless bridle is necessarily the right fit for your horse as well. But yeah, long answer, kind of rambling, but it's no, that, that's good. And I think, uh, you know, we've had saddle fitters for a while. Everyone's familiar with having a saddle that is suitable for your horse, but now bit fitters are becoming more of a, a thing, which I think is good because every horse's mm-hmm. mouth has a slightly different anatomy. So um, yeah, that's good. And going back to what you were saying before about um, even when you used to have gloves and wear them out every week and having the tight reins to ultimately get self-carriage, that just doesn't make sense to me. No, you know, no, only lightness, lightness. <laughs> Yeah, it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But anyway, um, speaking of that side of things, uh, which I guess is more apparent in competitive world um do you have any ambitions to compete did you used to compete and um yeah why or why not 
Yeah. Um, this is actually a whole nother revolution that I'm like kind of going through personally right now as well. Um, I do, uh, I did compete a lot. I do compete. I haven't competed obviously in the last year because it's been kind of the whole world's gone crazy. <laughs> um, but no, I was competing and working in quotation. Um, and one of the reasons why I chose that is because you're allowed to use whatever tech you want. So that means that you can ride in a dressage saddle and still have a bitless bridle, or you can, you know, the whole spectrum. And I love the rule book actually, because um, I think it really is honoring the horse. So like you can't have cruel tack, you know, in the way that there are many places within the horse world competitively where I don't think the tack regulations are near strict enough um, because they allow some seriously awful and torture machines to be placed on the horses' bodies. Um, but yeah, I really, I enjoy working at quotation because it kind of gives me that freedom. Um, I am planning on competing uh, this year as well. I have a couple of competitions lined up with one of my young horses. Um, and I think that I actually really enjoy it because <laughs> I love putting myself in really difficult situations because I'm really competitive. And to me, that's like a beautiful place for me to grow because I'm so competitive. It's a great opportunity for me to force myself to be an advocate for the horse. So like if the horse isn't having a good time, like my competitive side goes, doesn't matter. Like you could, you can just, you know, use a little extra this and a little extra that and like get the job done. And oh so I, <laughs> it's a total test for me. And um, I've actually kind of changed even the language about how I talk about competition. And I try to use the word exhibition. Um, to me, that changes the psychology of it a little bit. And just like the meaning behind the word, I'm not competing with my horse. I'm exhibiting the work that we've done together. It's a display. Yeah. Yeah. It's a display. Exactly. And so, um, I think that when I put it like that in my mind, I go, it's important for me to show that there is something outside of the realm of like normal horsemanship. And I think the other thing too, is that a lot of the arguments that I come across, uh, against the kind of style of training that I do is like oh well that's cool like you can do you can do you know whatever tricks but like you can't do anything practical you can't go do anything really real with your horse and I'm like actually no I totally can um so it's kind of to me been like this great opportunity to exhibit and display the abilities of um this kind of horsemanship you know like the horse that I'm actually going to be competing this year I started him as, well, when I bought him, they told me he was four, but it turns out he was three. So I started him a little younger than I would have, but luckily I started really slowly, but started him as a three-year-old with starting with positive reinforcement. And that's for his entire career. He has only, um, you know, non-escalating negative reinforcement that is transitioned from tactile cues that was taught by positive reinforcement. And all of when, I love to be able to kind of point to him and go, look, it is possible. And he's not an easy horse. And so I do like, I do like the idea of going out there and kind of like putting myself out there and opening myself up to criticism in that way, as long as I'm honoring the horse, which I'm lucky because he does dearly seem to love showing off. Um, so we haven't had any issues in terms of like him not wanting to, to participate. He seems to really enjoy it and he's not uh, like, concerned or worried about the show environment um 
But then the other part of me has been that I've been in the last year since not being able to show. Um, I've like really enjoyed the freedom of just going like, I'm just doing this for myself and I'm doing this for the horses. Um, so I'm kind of always torn between those two, like my competitive nature and like my desire to be an advocate for this type of work for the horse kind of is at odds with the, the like, kind of quiet voice within you that goes like we're just doing this to like I don't know if you're familiar with the monks who make sand drawings and then sweep it all up at the end nice. it's this like really beautiful process and I'm so bummed I don't know the name of it but it's these monks that will create these beautiful mandalas on the floors of temples with colored sand and they're like so intricate and they spend days and days and days working on this like just etching tiny, tiny, tiny details into this great, huge mandala. And then at the end of it, they just sweep it all up because it's about the art and it's for them, it's about the meditation and it's about the honor that they're showing. And that is how I feel about horsemanship a lot of the time. Like I love that I come into the arena and we, we like offer this gift to each other. We offer this like beautiful connection between the horse and rider or horse and handler on the ground. Um, and to me, it almost feels like kind of dirty to feel like I should try to like put quantification on that like why would I put that up for judgment when it's beautiful just the way it is so it's kind of always back and forth on that but I am signed up for some shows this year okay <laughs> yeah it's interesting I think a lot of people once they discover you know a nicer way of being with horses I guess they do start to question the purpose of competing but I really yeah. like how you have this mindset change of it being an exhibition and also mm -hmm you know, being an advocate for the horse. But I also think there are other ways to do that as well, like you're already doing through Instagram, which is fantastic. Um, can you tell us what horse-related purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last 12 months? Oh, um, <laughs> I'm a saddle addict. Having saddles that fit my horses like perfectly and fit me perfectly because I think that that's a huge part of like if we're going to ride, we should be really kind of like buying a good bra. Like you should... Yeah. Next time we get a really good comfortable bra. Um, so um, yeah, I actually have uh, my. I finally got a nice dressage saddle, which I'm really excited about. It's um, a Doibu and Patna, which is actually a company that I work for too. Um, they're Avante Double dressage saddle, which I love. Um, and then it's very fancy and it's so comfortable. I love it. Um, and it's adjustable so I can adjust it to the horses and continuously get it fitted to my main horses, but I can also kind of use it on, on other horses and um, fit it to the horse because I think it's really, really important to, if we're going to ride a horse, we should have a properly fitted saddle. Yes, absolutely. And it's so nice when you find one that fits you and the horse and it's a luxury as well, because usually they're so expensive. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it is. But to me, it's worth it. I'm like, if it fits, it should fit everybody, but it's really hard to fit it's hard to find a saddle that fits both of you guys correctly. And so yeah, I found the saddle and put it on. I was just like, ah, oh, I'm home. It's so nice. So good. On another note, if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And what would you ask them? Oh, <laughs> all <laughs> the hard so questions. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think it would be a lot of, I think, Nuno Oliveira is one of my number ones that I would absolutely want to just have dinner with him and pick his brains. Um, and 
I just have a bunch of questions for him about like various different kind of mundane uh, things. Oh, it'd be kind of hard. I'd have to like learn how to speak. Uh, <laughs> I guess he's spoke English. So was, uh, some of the the things about reading older texts in terms of like older horsemanship texts is like the translations to English aren't always very good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just some like mundane translation questions and like making sure we have it right. Uh, but I would, yeah, I would just want to talk to him more about like his, I want to hear about his emotional relationship with the horses and like if he, you know, how he felt about that sort of thing and and just kind of get more of a personal side because I think he was somebody who had that um, he had that deep emotional connection with his horses that allowed like such incredible communication to happen. And I think he was really in touch with um, like his body physically. And I'm really interested to know if like that translated over emotional. Uh, I think I would probably be so nervous that I would be able to ask any of the questions though. <laughs> um, let's see. And then who else would I want at that dinner? Um I actually, so I recently have kind of gained a lot of respect for uh, Warwick Schiller. And I think I want him at the table too, because he is a really good interviewer and an awesome horseman. And, and a great um, storyteller. <laughs> a really good storyteller. So he would be really interesting to have at the table too. And I think maybe if I was too nervous to ask the questions, then he would just like casually ask them and like manage to get all this interesting stuff out of Nuno. <laughs> um let's see and then i feel like honestly there's got to be some like secret horse woman of the past that like we none of us have heard of that has just like done all sorts of magic work with horses and like hasn't even bothered to come out and tell us who she is because she's so tied up with what she's doing and that's who the third person that i would want to invite because i feel like there are so many untold stories of incredible incredible um horse men but also horse women and, and uh I feel like specifically horse women because we're like only now just getting our time to shine in the equestrian world and getting really any space to speak but um yeah yeah I feel like there must be so many people out there who are incredible with horses whose horses do have a lot of autonomy but they don't really put themselves out there they can't be found so we we don't know about them which is yeah. I mean, I can see why they do that, but it's also a shame because they would inspire so many other people to, to follow mm -hmm. that pathway. So, totally. yeah, I know what you're saying there. Um, do you have any favourite horse books or resources? Um, let's see. Hold on, I've actually got my little pile of books here that I really like. <laughs> I mean, I've got a whole bookcase behind me. Well, it's sort of not full, but <laughs> a lot um, of people as well, so... <laughs> Actually, one of the ones that I um, noted down that I wanted to share that I think was really important and um, I would recommend to any horse people is actually the books by Daniel Goleman and um, they're about human relationships, uh, but there's social intelligence and I think he has one on emotional intelligence too that um, I think are kind of revolutionary and should be read by everybody because I mean, they're all concepts that I think we're all aware of, but it was really cool to have put down in a book and be able to um, to really like see how and and how we can become more aware of our our own selves. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of times there's this like draw to like learn more about the horses and learn more about like how we can be better 
equestrians and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that is, of course, very important. But um, something I'm always trying to focus on in myself is like becoming more aware of my own internal self. And of course, we all do it for the horse because <laughs> it's easier to do it for somebody else than it is for yourself. But I think it's a it's a gift to be able to give that to yourself. And then it's also a gift to all the relationships you have in your life, whether they're equine or human. Yeah, because I think there's, there's so many resources out there to learn about horse training techniques and mm-hmm. about the horse itself, like the species and emotions and all of those things. But yeah, unless we can be, I guess, better humans ourselves, none of those techniques are going to work. <laughs> it's so true. Um, so if your horses could talk with words, what do you think they would say to you and what would you like to say to them? Oh, I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to think that they would have some like really deep stuff to say, which I'm sure they would. But I think a lot of them would be like, I've been trying to tell you for like the last couple of years that I really want this one specific spot scratched and <laughs> you're always going right around it and you're not actually getting the right spot because <laughs> I really love scratches. Um, no, but I, I, I do think that um, each of my horses would have something like deeply profound and beautiful to say because they all have such incredibly powerful and unique personalities themselves. Um, I would love to ask them um, more about like their history because a lot of a lot of my horses come to me and I don't know their history. Um, I'm lucky with a few of them that I do, but even even the ones where I know part of their history, I don't know all of them. And I would love to just be able to talk to them about that. And um, I think I would like to be able to, with words, tell them how much they mean to me and how how sincerely I mean it when I tell them that I, I don't ever want them. I don't ever want to push them past what they're willing to give with me. Um, and I think that that is something that I'm striving to do every day with my actions, but to be able to like tell them that with words, that would be really, really wonderful. That's beautiful. I've also wondered what sort of accent my horses would have if they could talk. <laughs> oh my what god! Kind of yes. Personality they would be like, you know, in a school situation or something. <laughs> like this one's the jock and this one's the popular girl. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I think sometimes. Before we wrap up, can you tell us what is next for you? Where do you see yourself in ten years' time, and what is your ultimate goal with horses? Oh, um, I mean, in 10 years time, I'd love to pretty much just be doing the same thing I'm doing right now, which is pretty much spending every waking moment thinking about them and working with them. And um, yeah, that's just like not much more in the world that I could ask for. It's like living the absolute dream. Um, I think my ultimate goal with horses is um, is just to continue the process of, of refining our communication. And in, in that, I don't mean like, our ability to have them listen to our aids more, but more like deepening the, the like kinesthetic language that we have together and the emotional language too. Like um, I do have the, I had this really beautiful experience with one of my horses recently who um, were learning some of the higher school movements at Liberty. So um, we've been learning like school halt and Lavad and some Terater and it's this really beautiful feeling in hand and I can feel it. So um succinctly and clearly in our body movements when we're on the ground and then translating that under saddle has always been the under saddle work for me has always been more difficult but I had this really incredible like like goosebumps all over immediately wanted to cry moment where we were working together and 
um, you know, bareback and I have a side pull on, but the reins are loose. And I was able to just like with breath and just contracting small muscles in my body, it was like everything just clicked so perfectly and just was able to like lift into this beautiful school hall and there's this beautiful lavade. And it was just like, so, I mean, to me, I was like, that's it. That's the peak. Like I've, I've hit, there's, there's nothing to go further from here. But the amazing thing is that that feeling also translates in the most mundane moments of like just the same connection in walk or like walking alongside or going down, walking down the road or down the trail. Like there's those same moments. And so it was this really beautiful reminder that we can have these incredible develop this incredible developed communication with them, like between our bodies, between our energies, but that, that connection can translate to all the moments that we have with them and that it can always get deeper. That's so nice. I'm sure our listeners are thinking, yes, I want that for myself. And, and where can I find out more about Tara? Can you tell us where we can find more about you and also um, about your online herd course? That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, you can find me online at uh, Unbridled Goddess. I'm on Facebook and in unbridledgoddess.com um, and on my website you can click on the herd section and you'll get a little bit more information on that course um, yeah I'm like kind of in the process of revamping it right now and I'm hoping in the next couple months to have um, some more courses available too uh, the herd course is primarily about um, like our inter- interpersonal relationship with ourselves and how we can deepen that in order to uh, deepen our relationship with our horses and become uh, you know, more clear and connected horse people. Uh, so you're welcome to check it out. Um, and hopefully stay tuned for some more courses in the, in the future as well. Nice. Sounds awesome. And to finish up, can you tell us what is the one message or takeaway that you would like our listeners to get out of today's conversation? I think it would just be to go out and enjoy your relationship with your horse for what it is, which is there's this incredible, magnificent being that's willing to share space with you. And we have all this responsibility surrounding it and all these goals and ideas and all that. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to like just looking your horse in the eye and just appreciating who they are, I think that's um, that's something that can be easy to forget in this really crazy, really wild, busy world that we have. So um, I hope you take you get a chance to take a moment and, and just appreciate that because it's it's so beautiful. And we all have that. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I guess we get involved in horses because of that. You know, we love them. We think they're amazing, but somewhere along the line, it can be lost. So it's nice to reapproach your horse with that new, well, that old way of thinking about your horse in absolute awe and just being grateful to be in their presence. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. Thank you, for, thank you for leaving us with that message. And thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an amazing chat. Super nice. You're so welcome. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions from today's show, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to reach out and say hi, I would love to connect with you on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Remember to also register for my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com.